I would like to invite Wilson for our scripture reading. Morning, church. Morning. Uh, today we're going to be reading from Luke 15, uh, verse 11 to 32. This is a good one. Um, it's a parable of the parochial son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens that, uh, of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he, had, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and will say to him Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and he, and he called to one of the servants and asked them uh, what, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father was, has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out to entreat him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your commandments, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, but this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened cow for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Thank you. 
Thanks, Wilson. Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see like faces and not just masks when I look out here. It's like there's people here again. I know there's been people here all along, but it just feels so nice. So last week, we started our Lent series uh, looking at parables of Jesus in the book of Luke as we get ready to celebrate Easter. And we're using the time between now and then to just look at different teachings of Jesus and hear what he has to say to us as we prepare to celebrate his death and resurrection. And we have a reading plan that goes along with this, the One Campaign. So if you haven't joined yet, we invite you to join the One Campaign, which has a reading plan that goes through the whole book of Luke um, up from basically last week till the time of Easter. But you can just jump in today, join where we're at and, and follow along. And today, we have a story that is probably familiar to a lot of us. And the the danger of a familiar story is you can sort of just ignore it because you assume you already know it. But I think there's a lot of stuff in this story that God wants us to see today. So even if you know it, even if you've heard it a thousand times, I invite you to to listen again with fresh ears as we look at this story. And what we're going to see today is that the father rejoices when any son comes home. The father rejoices when any son comes home. We'll see a request for the father, the father and younger son, the father and older son, and then the father and you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and this chance to look at your word. We thank you for um, just the way that you've revealed yourself through stories and the chance that you've given us to know you through reading this book and looking at the things you tell us in it. Pray that you give us ears to hear today, hearts to understand and just the love for you that longs to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's story, it's a famous one. Even if you haven't really read the Bible, it's one that's been copied and mimicked throughout pop culture. And so you may have heard some version of this at some point. And in Jesus' telling of this story of what's typically known as the prodigal son, it starts with a really odd request. I think we often tend to skip over this part and just move on to like the real story. But this opening request is a really important part of the story itself. There's a man, he has two sons, and the younger one comes and says, dad, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance right now. Now, according to Old Testament law, if you had children, you split your property evenly between them when you died, but the firstborn got twice as much as everyone else. So with two kids, this younger kid is getting a third of the father's net worth. That's his request. Give me a third of your net worth right this moment. And we know from the details of this story, the dad is very wealthy. A third of his wealth is a lot of money. It can set you up for life if you get this. And it will be this son's money someday, but he doesn't want to wait. He wants it right now. So he essentially tells his dad, dad, I don't care whether you're alive or dead. I just want your stuff. Give it to me now. Which is shocking in and of itself, but even more shocking is what the father does. He gives him the money. Like, I don't, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. That's a really, really important detail that's supposed to just sort of stop us in our tracks. Like, if you had a child who came to you and said, give me a third of your net worth right this moment, would any of you be like, that's a good idea, I'm gonna do that? 
No, we'd slap the child and be like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm not going to do that. And yet this father does it. And we're just like, yeah, of course he would do that. No, no normal human being would do this. There's something weird about this father. The, the fact that the father says yes shows us some deep insights into his character and his approach to money, which come into the rest of the story and showing us his character and how he responds to his sons. See, the passage doesn't explicitly tell us why he gave this son the money. But with a lot of Jesus stories, they leave some details just unexplained. And I think a big part of the reason for that is that Jesus wants you to walk away and think about it and ask questions and try and piece it together so you can understand more of what he's trying to say in this story. And I think this is one of those places. Like if you, if you look through the rest of the story, we get some hints of what could be going on inside the father as he does this. Like we know from his response to his sons later in the story, he loves his sons. He will stop at absolutely nothing to have a relationship with them. Doesn't matter how much it costs him financially. Doesn't matter if he loses face in the eyes of his friends and neighbors. He will do anything to have a relationship with them. Second, this father knows his sons. He knows their character. He knows that once his younger son gets the money, he's going to just go spend it all and then he'll be desperate and then he'll come back home. That's why the father spends his days watching the horizon, waiting for this kid to come back because he knows his son's character. He knows my son's not going to take this money and use it wisely and have himself set up for life which narrows the possible answers to our original question. Why did the father say yes? The father didn't say yes because he thought this was some great business investment. He, he knew the son's character. He knew the moment this money is in my son's hands, I'm never seeing it again. It's gone. It was not an investment in the son's business potential. But he also doesn't just know the younger son. He knows the older son as well. He knows the older son is self-righteous and prone to anger. He knows when the younger son messes up, the older son doesn't tend to respond in grace. And the father's knowledge of the character of both of his sons probably shaped his response right here. He knew the son's going to get this money someday. I could give it to him now. He could get it as an inheritance after I die. But either way, someday it's going to be his. And whenever it becomes his, he's going to waste it. It's going to disappear overnight. It's going to be gone. He's going to end up destitute. And if I wait to give it to him as an inheritance till after I'm dead and gone, when he's destitute, where can he go? He can't come home to that older brother. He's going to say, serves you right and turn him out on the street. I think the father's thought process was, if I give the son this money now, it's going to be a little bit financially tighter for the family the rest of my lifetime. The son's going to go out and waste it. But if he wastes it during my lifetime, he has a safe place to come home to. I can use this as an opportunity to teach him responsibility set him up for lifelong responsibility and success in a way that I couldn't otherwise. 
And it's an expensive investment in teaching his son this lesson, a third of his net worth. But he thinks it's worth it because he loves his son. And I think that perspective just challenges the way that we as a society tend to think about money, right? Like in our world, I worked for it. I saved it and lived frugally and invested it and made good investments and it's mine and it's in my account for the sake of making me happy. Yes, I'll use it to get my kids a good foundation, get them a good start in life, give them an education. When I'm gone, they'll get what's left. But as long as I'm alive, it's here to make me happy. If they're in need, yes, I'll help, but I'm not just gonna waste it on them. The test in our world of whether we've used our money properly is whether we're able to keep doing everything with it that we want until the day we die. Keep having fun, keep enjoying life because I have enough. But that wasn't this dad's perspective on money. For him, money was a tool that God gave him for the sake of loving the people around, them, around him and helping them become the people that God wanted them to be. He looked at all the money in his account. And he said, this is something God gave me to help my sons grow into maturity. And if it costs a third of everything I own to teach my son responsibility, it's a good investment. He has a sense of intentionality in his approach to money and parenting that's rare if not unheard of in our world today. And his approach to money seems incredibly irresponsible and careless on the surface level, but actually because he knows his sons, it works. And obviously I'm not saying we should all just go out, empty our bank accounts and give the money to our kids and let them live it up for a couple of weeks before our family is bankrupt. That's not what I am suggesting. But I think this is a good place for us to just ask the question, like what would it look like to rethink our approach to money? Like how would we use our money differently if we saw it as a tool for teaching our kids to live for Jesus rather than just a tool for making us comfortable? Like how would we, I don't, I don't know, maybe we invite our kids to help us make some financial decisions that aren't gonna cripple the family if they <laughs> don't turn out the best. Maybe we just have more conversations with them about how we use our money. Maybe we show them, like we want our kids to be generous people. So we show them us being generous so they can learn that generosity is a priority for our family. I don't know what the changes would look like in your family, but how would we use our money differently? If first and foremost, money was a gift from God to help train our children into the people they're supposed to be rather than just a tool for making us comfortable. These are some of the questions that come to mind when we see the father say yes to the son's request. But of course, that's not the whole story. That's just the introduction, right? It gives us a glimpse into the father's heart that becomes really significant later on, but there's more to the story. So let's look now at the father and the younger son. Because the father, like we said, he grants the son's request. The son gets the money and he's out of there. He leaves town. He goes far away and he, it says he squanders his money on reckless living. Now, this doesn't mean that he was necessarily doing things that are like inherently sinful. His brother says later that he was with prostitutes. It doesn't tell us that. These words just talk about being incredibly, incredibly wasteful. The word for squanders, it's an agricultural term for sticking your hand in a bag of seeds and 
throwing them out across the field, right? Like you can just picture the son with his bag of money, like going into the club and be like, yeah, drinks for everyone, right? Uh, And then this word reckless, again, it's just incredibly wasteful. There was a city in the ancient world that was described as reckless because the rich people in that city would have their feet washed with spiced wine instead of water. It's just like the extremes of extravagance, right? Like if this guy was going from Hong Kong to Macau, he wouldn't take a bus. He wouldn't take a ferry. He would charter a private jet. He's living in a way that his money is going to be gone overnight. And of course, that's what happens. And as his luck would have it, the moment his money runs out, a famine hits the land. And so food is scarce. The dollar doesn't go as far anymore. People are less likely to be generous because they barely have enough for themselves. He's all of a sudden on his own, no money, no way of getting food, no one to help him. So he decides, I got to get a job. I got to work and earn a living. And he gets a job tending pigs. He is to pigs what a shepherd is to sheep. And if you know anything about Old Testament, pigs are an unclean animal to Jewish people. And so being a, a pig shepherd... I don't know what the term is for that. But being one of those is like the most horrible, shameful, awful job possible for a Jewish boy. And he's got this horrible, awful job. It's not even like he's sold his soul to become a millionaire because he's still destitute. He's still starving in a state of perpetual hunger every single day. His situation is so bad, it tells us that he is jealous of the pigs. Have any of you ever been jealous of a pig? No, like think about how low you would have to stoop in life to be jealous of a pig. He spends his days daydreaming about how great it would be to be the pigs and just be able to eat enough that you're not hungry all the time. But even that is a daydream because no one is helping him at all. And then one day it tells us he comes to himself It's like he's woken up from a bad dream. He realizes I've spent my days daydreaming about just being a pig. But if I step back, there are bigger steps I could take to getting my life back in order. I have power to to make choices that will bring change in the future. And he realizes I'm here. I'm working my butt off, taking care of these pigs, doing this shameful job, not even having enough to eat. And back in my father's house, there are servants who have more than enough. I'm perpetually hungry. My dad is so generous that the people who work for him not only have enough to get full, but there are leftovers afterwards. I can't hope that if I show up there, he'll ever bring me back as a son. But if I could just get a job as a servant working for him, it would be so much better than my current job. So he comes up with a plan. I'm going to go home. I'm going to admit that I've done wrong and say that I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to make it clear that I'm not looking for any special treatment. I'm just asking for a job. And so once his plan is made, he takes the very important next step of turning his plan into action. He gets up, he goes home. And just as a side note here, like it's, it's awesome for this kid that he knew where to go when he hit rock bottom. He knew I have a place that's safe in my father's house where I'll be taken care of and provided for. Maybe I'll have to work for it, but, but I'll be fed. How many people 
in our world, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members are at this point where they might be having these thoughts, feeling like I'm at rock bottom. I want to change. I have no clue where to go. Do you realize we as the church are supposed to be a safe place for people to come when they reach this point? Our God is the father who wants to welcome people in when they are at this point or any point in their lives. How can we as a church be more intentional about letting the people around us know this is a safe place to come even when you're at your worst? I think it starts by just getting to know the people around us, knowing them well enough that we can recognize when they're having struggles and troubles. And second, I think it's just modeling that we are safe people ourselves, listening to them um, when they share with us, offering to help in tangible ways when we're able to, helping them realize if God's people can love me this much, maybe God could love me and accept me too. Maybe the church, maybe God really is a safe place to come when I'm at this point in life. That's just a side note. But for this story, the boy knows he has a safe place to go. And so he sets out to go home to his father. And as it turns out, his father has been waiting for him all along. The father sees him when he's a long way off. He feels compassion for him and he runs to him. Just like the Samaritan in the parable we looked at last week. He sees him, he feels compassion, and seeing and feeling compassion leads him to move towards the person in trouble. And the father runs to the son. Back in the day, they used to wear robes. If you were going to run, you had to pull up your robes so that your legs didn't get caught up in them as you ran and you tumble and fall. And so grown men did not run because it was shameful to show off that much leg. But this dad doesn't care. He is willing to shame himself for the good of his son. He runs to his son. And when he gets there, he embraces him. Literally in the Greek, it says he fell on his neck. He like wraps himself around this kid. He's so excited to see him. And then once they're together, the son starts his speech. I'm sure he'd rehearsed it hundreds or thousands of times along that walk home. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad won't let him finish the speech. He cuts him off. He interrupts him. The first word the dad says literally in the Greek is quick, like quick servants. The things I'm about to tell you, time is of the essence. Do it as fast as possible. Quick, bring him the best robe, not just any robe. We're not just covering him. We're giving him the best, best robe on my son right now. Get a ring, put it on his hand, sandals for his feet. What's the father doing? He's covering his son's shame. The son brought shame on himself by asking for the father's inheritance, by taking it off and spending it somewhere else, by coming home destitute and a mess and a failure. And the father, the first, first thing the father does when he comes back, he says, no son of mine needs to walk around ashamed. He gives the son honor to cover the shame by, by physically putting him in these beautiful, expensive, top-of-the-line designer clothes and restoring his status as son. He's making it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a person who is welcome here. This is a person who is wanted here. This is a person who has a home here. This is a person who is to be treated with respect and dignity here. And to celebrate, we're going to throw the biggest party this town has ever seen. He tells them to, fill the fat, to kill the fatted calf. A cow can feed about a little over, I did 
some Google searching this week, a cow can feed over 2,000 people. They didn't have fridges back then or freezers, so you couldn't just store the leftover meat. You needed to eat it all in like 24 hours. So they're killing an animal with enough meat to feed 2,000 people, and it needs to be eaten in 24 hours. So they're going to go out and they're going to invite every single person they know and tell them, invite every single person you know, because we need help eating this meat so it doesn't go bad. Right? They're having as big a party as they could possibly throw. That's the father's response to the son coming home. So I just want us to recognize the father's response to this younger son. He's showing in every way possible that in this father's house, there's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can go that makes you unwelcome when you come back home. There's nothing you can do and nowhere you can go that makes you unwelcome when you come back home. He loves his children. If you are his child, you are always wanted. He's ready to pay the debt to cover your mistakes. If you're feeling lost and stuck and don't know what to do or where to go, his home is the place that you can always come back to. It's powerful, right? And so often when we tell the story or hear the story told, it just stops right there. I have a a kid's Bible that I like to read to the boys at night and it stops the story right there. And it's a powerful story if you stop it right there. But it's actually not the full story Jesus is telling here because it starts out by saying there was a man who had two sons and so far we've only met one of those sons. So we've seen the father and the younger son. Now Jesus transitions and starts telling us about the father and the older son because it's only at this point in the story that we're introduced to the older brother. And he is the opposite of this younger son in pretty much every way. The younger brother is bold and makes big requests. The older brother just keeps his head down, waits to be recognized. The younger brother is extravagant and wasteful. This older brother, he's very frugal. The younger brother shirks his responsibility and runs off. The older brother has never missed a day of work. The younger brother leaves. The older brother stays home. I mean, if you could design an ideal child in a lab, how many of you would make that child? None? Okay. Maybe you just know where the story is going. I feel like many parents would be like, this sounds like a wonderful child to have in my, in my house. You know, this is the child that like, if they had exams coming up, they would be the ones who are like, no, mom, dad, don't interrupt me. I am studying. I have made zero plans. I've cleared my calendar for the next month so that I can ace these exams, right? That's, it's exam season. So everyone's getting ready. This guy would have been on top of it. And this celebration is going on. The biggest party the town has ever seen. And we learn that as the party is going on, this older brother is in the field working which is supposed to raise a very important question for us. Why has no one told him there's a party going on? Right, like beyond the obvious, like as a family member, you'd be expected to be at the party. Actually in that culture, if a father had a conflict with a younger sibling, the firstborn child, the firstborn son, sorry, firstborn son was expected to be the mediator between them. So if things were working normally, the moment the younger brother appeared on the horizon, some servant should have gone running to the older brother and been like, get here quickly. Your brother's back. You got to help with things between him and your dad. Make sure everything is right. But no one did that. And then a party started 
and no one mentioned to this brother that a party had started. And now everyone is at the party except the older brother who's clueless that a party is even happening and has just spent the entire day working in a field. Like, like by, think about these details. It says that as he came home from work, he heard the band and the dancing. Like by the time that this guy realizes there's a party going on, word has spread far and wide. They've found a band. The band has come. The band has set up. The band has started playing. The people in the surrounding village have stopped work, have gotten cleaned up, have changed into their party clothes, have come over to the father's house, and there are so many people there already that he can hear the dancing from outside before he can even see what's going on. It takes a while for an invitation to spread that far. And this whole time the invitation's been spreading, no one mentioned it to the older brother. Why? because they knew his character. You notice what he does the moment he learns what happened? He calls one of the servants, asks what these things mean, and the servant said, your brother has come, your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. No servant wants to be the one to make their master angry. It's not good for business. You know, this guy's going to be the boss someday. You don't want to be on his bad side. And so they all avoided sharing the news with him that they knew would make him angry. And this son, the perfectly obedient one, who's never done anything wrong, refuses to go inside the party. So his father comes out to him, which again is a big deal. It's supposed to make us go, whoa, because the father going out to the son makes the father lose face. It brings shame on the father. If the father's friends were at the party, which surely all of his friends were at the party, if they heard his son is outside refusing to come in, they would have said, you know what you should do? Have that kid beaten until he chooses to come in. Right? That, that's the proper societal response. Just beat the kid until he chooses to come in and join the party. But the father doesn't do that. He goes himself and he goes begging. The word entreated, when it says he entreated his son, it literally means to beg. Like it was an action that was often done on your knees or on your face. You beg someone for something. That's what the father is doing to his son. And how does the son respond? He just speaks down to his father. He doesn't speak with the respect that he should have for his father. He starts lecturing him. Look! All these years, I have served you as a slave. You notice he, he actually doesn't see himself as a son. He sees himself as a slave. He says, I never disobeyed a command. Apparently, refusing to come into the party is the first time he's ever disobeyed his father. And you haven't done anything for me. And now, this guy, your son, not my brother, your son, goes out, destroys your life's work, blows all your hard-earned money on prostitutes, which again, we don't know that for sure. This could just be the older brother throwing accusations at his brother, hoping something would stick and make people upset. But he goes out, he wastes all your money on prostitutes, he comes back and he gets the biggest party we've ever seen after you've given me nothing my entire life, come on! And the father, incredible, 
just as he has the whole time, keeps his singular focus on the relationship. Right? At this point, the father has every right to get up, lecture his son, and put him in his place right where he belongs. Like, you think you're so great and obedient? You're disobeying me right now. You think you're so much better than your brother, so high and mighty, but you are disobeying me. You're no better than he is. So get down on your, off your high horse, get inside the party, or else I'm going to have you beaten so hard you're not going to sit for a week. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that because he knows that's just going to put a bigger divide in the relationship. So he further lowers himself and keeps on begging. He says, son, he's got this emphasis on the closeness of the relationship. He cares for him. He wants to see things go well for him. He says, you are always with me. Your presence with me, the relationship I have with you is worth so much more to me than any gold or treasures that I could care about. And he says, all that is mine is yours. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've stopped to do the math, but your brother already got his inheritance, which means everything left that belongs to me is actually going to you. If you want something from me, you don't even have to ask for it because it's already yours. Like you can just take it. How could I say no to anything you ask for? Did you see how generous I was to your brother? You realize you get twice as much from me as he does, right? Like how can you think I'd be any less generous to you than I've been to your brother? And then the father says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. This word fitting actually can mean like necessary. Like it was essential that when your brother came back, we have a party for him. If we hadn't had the party, we would be doing something wrong. By not being at the party, you are doing something wrong. For this, your brother, reminding him again of the relationship, it's your brother. Your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. The father actually says this twice in the passage. He was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. The father is just so shocked and excited about the fact that his son has come home that he can't keep but, but sharing his excitement over and over and over again. And then the story ends. Close the curtains, end scene, that's it. Quite a cliffhanger, huh? Like that leaves us with so many questions. Like, is the older brother going to go inside the party? That's, a, that's the big prominent one. But then there are others. Like in that culture, if you had a younger sibling who was unable to provide for themselves after the parent died, it was the older sibling's responsibility to provide for the younger sibling. Is, is this brother going to do that once their father dies? Or, or how about the younger brother? Has he actually changed? Is he actually going to be a different person now? Or is he just going to enjoy being in the father's house and being comfortable for a little bit? And then once he's gotten back to himself and settled down, is he just going to run off and sell the robe and the sandals and the ring and live it up again? What's going to happen? We don't know. So many details that Jesus leaves unanswered. Which brings us to our last section, the father and you. See, why does Jesus leave us with all these questions? And the answer is because this story is an invitation. At the start of Luke chapter 15, Jesus is teaching and, and there are uh, tax collectors and sinners coming around listening to him. And then these groups called the scribes and the Pharisees start judging Jesus and complaining about it. 
And these two groups, the, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes, they represent the two extreme ends of types of people in Jewish society in those days. The tax collectors and sinners are the baddest of the bad, the worst of the worst. The tax collectors had literally sold out their own nation to a foreign power for the sake of getting some extra money in their pockets. And on the other end, it, like Jesus hanging out with them would be like Jesus today hanging out with prostitutes and drug dealers and triads. And then on the other end, the scribes and the Pharisees were people who literally spent their lives memorizing every single word of the Old Testament, at least Genesis to Deuteronomy, maybe more. They memorized every single word and devoted their entire lives to obeying every single word as closely as possible. And so these guys, the perfect ones, they look at Jesus hanging out with the bad guys. And they're like, well, if Jesus is hanging out with them, pretty much discredits his ministry, doesn't it? It just shows that he doesn't really care about God. And it's to a crowd made up of these two groups, the tax collectors and sinners and the scribes and Pharisees, that Jesus tells this story. And you can see it now if you couldn't before. Jesus puts his entire audience into the story. Right? There's, there's three main characters in the story. There's the father. No one's the father because no one, we all said, no one would give their child a third of their net worth if they came and asked for it today. So no one is the father, which leaves the two sons. The tax collectors and sinners, they're the younger son. The Pharisees and the scribes, they're the older son. And all the open questions at the end of the story, they're an invitation to the audience. Tax collectors, sinners. Are you really ready to change? Are you serious about changing and, and living as God's children? If so, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. God, your father, he's ready to welcome you with open arms and he's ready to throw a party to celebrate you coming back. All you need to do is come home. And you Pharisees and scribes, you really think you know what it means to be God's children? Then show it by, by actually loving God and loving others. It's not just about good deeds. All your good deeds can't get you into the party. Right? You notice at the end of this story, the one who had done all the good deeds is the one who was outside the party. The only way to get in is through being invited and receiving the invitation. If you're relying on your good deeds, it's going to leave you outside the party and angry and bitter but you have an invitation today to let go of your self-reliance, to stop seeing yourself as a slave and just come enjoy being part of the party as a beloved child. And Jesus is saying, look, scribes, Pharisees, your father is on his knees in front of you, begging you to come in and join the party. He wants you there, but will you come? Jesus is teaching them and us that, that to be a Christian, to be part of God's family, to be part of God's party, it's not just about being a good moral person. It's about having a relationship with God that leads us to love him and love one another. The good moral person is the one who's outside the party when the story ends. It's the one who accepts the invitation and the given status of son who's inside. And why does Jesus feel like it's so important to teach this lesson to the people around him? 
It's because Jesus didn't come to fill the world with good moral people. He came to bring lost people home to God. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Jesus did not come to fill the world with good moral people. He came to bring lost people home to God. The church is not a museum where people can come and see all these perfect people who have gotten their lives together. The church is a hospital where lost and broken people can come and find safety and healing and care. The Bible teaches that all of us, whether we think of ourselves as good people, whether we think of ourselves as bad people, we've wandered away from God. Maybe that was through drugs and sex and lying and cheating. Maybe it was through trying our best to be so good that we can get through life without God. But regardless of our path of choice, it cuts us off from a relationship with God. It leaves ourselves far from him. We don't deserve to be welcomed back. But the story of the Bible is a story of another perfect brother, older brother, who when we are far away comes and chases us down in a far country to bring us home to our father. Jesus leaves the comfort of heaven to come find us on the earth. And he pays the price necessary to welcome us home back to the father's house. He paid our debt. But the debt he paid wasn't just financial. It wasn't just money. It was his life. And through his sacrifice, he gives an invitation to all of us, good, bad, in between. All of us are invited to have a relationship with the father, to come back to the father's house. So if you're here today, or you know someone who's like, I've done so many bad things. There's no way God would be okay with me. Like I've had people tell me, like, I'm pretty sure if I set foot in a church, it would just burn down. If that's you, it's wrong. God knows everything you've done, and he welcomes you home. All you have to do is come. And if you're here today and you're like, I, I'm not okay with this. I'm a good person. How can God treat those messed up people the same as he treats me? I've worked so hard. Jesus is clear the only way in is to accept his invitation. You can't earn your way in through your goodness. Your only options are either keep relying on your goodness and be miserable and angry and bitter and outside, or let go and receive the free gift and come inside and join the party and have true joy and belonging. There's no third way. And if you're somewhere in between, the same fact is true of you. There's nothing so bad that can keep you out. There's nothing so good that can get you in other than Jesus and receiving his invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are the perfect father who invites us in, who loves us, who says there's nothing you've done that can keep you away from me. I pray that each of us would hear that invitation today as an invitation for us, that we would receive the invitation, that we would come in and, and join the celebration that you have for us. God, we thank you for your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.